I am a sea of love. 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 You are a sea of love. You are a sea of love. We are a sea of love. We are a sea of love. Hello and welcome to the Womb Centered Healing Podcast. I'm Sama Morningstar and I have some announcements to share with you about what's going on in the Womb Centered Healing Temple this summer 2021. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And if you'd like to receive announcements in an email email form for each new um, podcast that comes out, as well as blogs, blog articles that are often related to the podcast topics, as well as upcoming courses and events, you can subscribe to the Womb Centered Healing Temple newsletter by visiting wombcenteredhealing.com. And I also encourage you, if you love this podcast, to please support it financially. You can subscribe financially through Anchor um, by making a, a, a monthly contribution of you know, a small contribution. They start at 99 cents, you know, <laughs> to really support this podcast and support the work that that I'm doing to make all of this wonderful information available to you and inspire you to think about the womb as the center of your universe. Once again, return to that womb of wisdom that resides within you. So if that feels like something you want to support financially, that's how you can do it. Um, Also, if you're interested in diving deeper into some of the topics and to really take a period of devotion in your life, devote some time and some energy in your life to deepening this practice of womb-centered living, I encourage you to take a look at the courses and workshops and particularly the Biomystical Womb Apprenticeship program that you can learn more about by visiting wombcenteredhealing.com and there's a button up at the top of the page that says Biomystical Womb Apprenticeship. You can go there and listen to um, some introductory videos and look at the details of the program and you don't have to do the whole 13-month program if you wanted to try out one of the eight phases in the program. Each phase is about a month long and I'm often sharing on the podcast and you know on these through the newsletter about the upcoming phases. So if you subscribe, then you'll start to get a sense of what the different phases are that are happening live 
throughout the year, um, but they're also available uh, in recorded form. So you can do any of them at any time throughout the year. Um, To just dive deeper and really devote some time to discovering and learning about and reinitiating yourself into the power of the womb. So don't hesitate to, to visit the website, wombcenteredhealing.com, and connect in that way. All right, that's all for now. Uh, enjoy the episode today. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Womb Centered Healing Podcast. I'm Salma Morningstar, and I have Mary with me here today. I met um, Mary through, I think you you replied to uh, one of my blog posts from, from my mailing, mailing list that was about my grandmother um, dying and the process that, that uh, my family went through with that. And you shared with me about your work in hospice. And we had a, quite a beautiful conversation about your work in hospice, Mary, and I was very moved by by what you shared with me and wanted you to come on the on the podcast, especially since lately, listeners know we've I've been focusing on the enchantress archetype, which is associated with that transitional time. Uh, most familiar people might be most familiar with the enchantress archetype in their experience with the premenstrual phase of the menstrual cycle, where we're transitioning from the fertile time to the menstruation time, and then back, you know, then that later is back into fertility, but that particular premenstrual time, and also the perimenopausal time of our lives, that transitional phase. And there's also a premenstrual time of our lives before we start menstruating at all when we're young, young teenagers that could also be um, looked at as a an enchantress phase of our life as well. So um, and and there's some some qualities to that that are very much um, connected to the work that you do that you are sharing with me about and this this process of working with family members or loved ones that are passing away or clients that and families that like you do professionally helping people transition um, is a very much of an enchantress calling and there's many aspects of that that we wanted to come on here and talk about and one one of the the fundamental aspects that's an enchantress calling is that it's a calling in and of itself, just that there, that, I mean, some people who enter into this kind of work, hospice work or various other kinds of work, they just are doing it to have a job. And then other people are doing it because they felt a calling inside to be of service in a certain way that they're, that, that it's really connected to their soul's purpose here. And when we feel that soul purpose calling in life and when we arrange our lives and make decisions in our lives 
to move towards fulfilling that soul purpose calling, that is an enchantress activity. We're enchanting our lives to align with our soul purpose calling. And it's and the, the difficulty or the turbulence or friction or um, unpleasant symptoms that we may have around our premenstrual or perimenopausal phases in life often have to do with turbulence around that soul purpose calling, like calling to us and, and having difficulty rearranging our lives to meet that or not even being aware of a soul purpose calling calling to us and not not being able to find our way to it so and and that can create turbulence and friction in our lives so I really want to just open the space Mary for you to share a little bit more about yourself and your work and how you relate to this soul purpose enchantress idea that I've been talking about thank you Sama so much I appreciate uh, the opportunity to explore these topics with you and share them with um, the listeners today. I think um, your introduction was wonderful, especially two uh, points that I'd like to just kind of tease out and bookmark, uh, one of them being the word transition, because obviously um, through the woman's uh, journey, there are a number of them that you've mentioned as well, the end of life transition. And the other topic that um, you mentioned was the soul purpose, soul's purpose. And maybe I can start by um, going to the, the experience that I had that really kind of, I think for me, planted the seed or, or, or marked my soul or marked my awareness uh, of my soul's purpose at a young age. And that was when uh, uh, I was seven years old. It was the summertime and we were swimming at a neighbor's house who had a swimming pool. And so there were all of my siblings, uh, were seven altogether and neighbor children. And the rule was to line up uh, to use the diving board so that you could each take a turn. And it was my turn to, to dive. And I got up on the diving board and I slipped off to the concrete and fell and found myself um, up above looking down on the scene, the children gathering around. Now, the, as a seven-year-old in a Catholic school, the only thing that made sense to the Mary that was up above looking down was that I had died. Uh, there wasn't a doctor there or machines to see if anything flatlined, but that's what this little kid's consciousness and, and experience identified for her. And I was blissfully up above, up outside of, of my body, uh, not being, you know, the, the kids for, who, who were in line were all gathered around. Come on, Mary, come on, hurry up, it's your turn, you know. Come on, quit, quit, quit fooling around, quit kidding us. You're, nothing's wrong with you, come on, get up. And I could also see my mother and the neighbor lady sitting off to the side, chatting away. And um, I was just in heaven. I mean, I was, you know, I didn't feel any of the kidding or the bullying or the any of that. And it was quite wonderful. And I just thought, I'm good, you know, why go back into that body? Uh, this is just great. And then, you know, after a while, the kid, I wasn't responding and all of the children kind of did a, a group gasp of kind of realizing, oh, she really is out. And when, when the children gasped, of course, my mother and, and the neighbor uh, 
heard the children's change of tenor and came running over and I watched from up above and the children parted and my mother, you know, was down looking at me with the neighbor behind my mother. And um, in that moment, when it kind of registered on my mother and, and, and the neighbor, um, that, you know, she had been down for a while and, and didn't look like there was any life in here. Both of these two mothers experienced a grief that all parents through all time who've ever lost a child experience. And in that moment, I experienced what they were experiencing. So going from this moment of tremendous freedom and bliss and joy and not wanting to come back into my body to then feeling what those two mothers uh, experienced, not just their own individual, but just as huge. I mean, the only way I've been able to describe it is, you know, all parents throughout all time who've ever lost a child, that's what blasted me. And there was no way that I could ever stay and enjoy what I was enjoying with those two women, two mothers, feeling what they were feeling. I mean, there'd be no joy for me. There'd be, there'd be no joy. And so, I mean, there was, and there was no decision on my part. I mean, it's the choiceless choice, you know? Right. It wasn't a choice and you can say there was a choice, but there was, there was just no choice. I just came back into my body. And with that, my eyes opened and I looked at my mom and, and the neighbor and there was the tremendous relief and release on their point from, you know, just this huge trauma in, in their minds and hearts to being relieved. And so that was um, the event that has really been kind of a, a maypole around which my life has pivoted sometimes a little bit more closely and sometimes forgotten about for a while. But um, that was the seed that was planted about an awareness of death and the joy of being on the other side. Mm. And, while, and that was between the summer of second grade and third grade. And I can easily go on to describing an experience with death in third and fourth grade, but I'd also like to stop and just check in and see if you have any comments or reflections, Sama. Yeah, thank you so much, Mary. Uh, it's such a such a powerful story, and it does bring up some questions for me because I've heard some of the other parts of your story about how that eventually and perhaps along the way. Um, influenced your career choices and that now you you work as a hospice caregiver for people that are on in their transition and i'm curious how often you have worked with families who were losing a child to illness or whatever or if that's not a demographic that you work with and and how because you know, for, for me, that, that sense that you described of, of deciding to come back because you wouldn't have any, be able to experience the joy of where you would have gone to um, knowing the, the grief of your, your mother and other parents, 
that seems to me like a, a, an essential part of the calling and and then also how then do we do parents release those children that cannot choose to come back because their illness is too grave or their injury too grave and and must go can 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 do have you found ways to help parents release those children from their own grief so that those children can move on and not be carrying the grief of their parents with them into the other realms that's a lot those are some big questions so I'm curious about that <laughs> well they're wonderful questions and maybe to kind of start with what I heard the first one was which was about working with have what do I have experience working with children um, and then kind of go on from there. So from this experience that I, I mentioned as a child, approximately uh, 1960, you know, I'm seven, eight years old. So let's fast forward to 1980 when, and that's just to, to move us quickly to answer, to, to, to look at your question and points. Mm -hmm. um, in 1980, I saw, uh, I was in graduate school in Vermont and I saw, uh, uh, an advertisement on a bulletin board on a street that, you know, destiny called me down. Um, and it was for training for hospice volunteers in 1980. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I had, other than reading um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying in 1969 or 70, um, you know, I kept my antenna out looking for avenues to express, express explore, um, and so when I saw this um, flyer about the training, that was to train hospice volunteers for the local community and, and county or area. And I went to the training and uh, was deeply resonant with and, and uh, touched by it. I, after it, I both started to volunteer uh, with it, with folks who were at the end of their life. And as well, the hospice trainers asked me to become a trainer, to be a, a trainer of new volunteers. I, I had had um, some, quite a bit of experience as a trainer. And so th that skill was transferable. They had the content and I had the training modalities. So I both became a trainer of new volunteers as well as working with, in, in Southeastern Vermont, it was mostly elderly folks. Um, their children had gone to Boston and New York for their school and their lives. And these older folks were open to volunteers coming. Um, after, while working in those, as a volunteer, I kept hearing inside of myself and feeling inside of myself the calling to work with people who were dying at younger ages, not just dying when society expects us to die, but those that are dying um, at times when society doesn't expect folks to die. And uh, that was the early 80s and the AIDS epidemic was going on in San Francisco. I happened to grow up a little bit south of San Francisco so and have quite a bit of family in the San Francisco area, so was quite familiar with the situation. And, um, you know, through a dream 
and a number of incidences felt very, very strongly called to go to San Francisco. For me, it was sort of like coming back to San Francisco and it wasn't something I really wanted to do because I loved the uh, small country life of Vermont and I'm not a big city girl, um, but I also recognized the, the calling and, and because I resisted it so much initially, I got sick and um, finally accepted um, and went to San Francisco and worked uh, there, you know, the youngest uh, gentleman that I worked with was about 18 years old. And this was at the time where they didn't even know what caused AIDS. And most of the, it was at that time, it was men with AIDS uh, hadn't spread outside that community as much as, as far as people knew. And, you know, there was quite a bit of a social stigma at that time about AIDS and gay people. And um, so there was quite a bit of social context to the hospice work that I was doing then, which was significantly different than working with the elderly in rural Vermont. And I did that work uh, first initially in individuals' homes. Um, I was working for the San Francisco AIDS Project and was a paid employee and worked in individuals' homes and then was asked to work in one of the, uh, what was called one of the Shanti homes. It was Shanti project um, uh, leased, you know, four or five bedroom Victorian homes. And then um, uh, men who were being evicted from their homes or men who were on the streets could have a bedroom and care uh, for them. And there were about four or five of these Shanti homes in San Francisco, and they designated different homes for different uh, specific uh, aspects of people with AIDS. So the particular home that I was working in were gentlemen who the AIDS affected them neurologically, so they had a form of dementia, which is quite similar to Alzheimer's. And then there was a home for gentlemen who the lung aspect of AIDS was prolific or different aspects. So I was in a home with five bedrooms, one man in each bedroom, and on average, one person died a week. Um, and so there was a constant turnover and we had nurses and social workers provided by San Francisco AIDS Project um, coming in and, and overseeing that. And myself and, a, and another person were the, the caregivers. And we had three eight hour shifts throughout the day. So the gentleman always had care 24 seven. So I did that. Um, and then my mother died of a heart attack very quickly. Uh, I mean, unexpectedly. And I dealt with that with my father and siblings for a couple of weeks. And when I came back to do the AIDS work, I had no emotional capacity to be with another person because I needed to be with myself. And I really wanted to see what that experience was like and knew that I needed to go through it genuinely in order to be able to come back to hospice work without the baggage of, of not looking at the passing of my mother and that relationship. So I took time out um, from, from the hospice, AIDS hospice work, and always knew I would come back to it. And then it was doing some other things and my father passed away again of a heart attack. It wasn't a long drawn out illness that we knew about. 
and could plan or were part of a hospice experience, he too just had a, a, a massive heart attack. And so then I dealt with that with my siblings and the, you know, the breaking up of the home and mom and dad's life for everything. And, um, and I wanted to be fully present for that experience too, that transition um, of the parents passing on and, and kind of a, a new generational feeling still knowing I would get back to the hospice work. And so then fast forward to 2000 and it's, I'm, I'm, I'm being called back into this work. And um, I did Sama look for working with children because I too felt that connection and still feel it. But the thing that I found um, is that children have their parents as caregivers and children, if you're, if I'm working with a 90 year old or an 80 year old, their spouse may no longer be alive. Their adult children may live out of state and they really do need a caregiver. I mean, I've, I've lived in for a year and a half in two different situations. That's one scenario. Another scenario is where you, you know, you work 12 hours and then another caregiver takes over for 12 hours, or I work for 12 hours and a family member you know, comes from nearby and stays overnight. You know, there's all sorts of different constellations. But the point I wanna make with elderly folks, they're much more in need of outside caregivers mm -hmm. because their family isn't readily available. Whereas for a child, the parents are usually in the home all the time. And the parents may, you know, there may be aunts and uncles, there may be friends from work or the neighborhood that can go do grocery shopping. And that might not be true for an elderly person whose friends have all died, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so all of that to say, while I've tried to connect with a, a children's hospice in the area and children's hospital, when I make the inroads, it always leads back to they have caregivers. They aren't needing an outside paid caregiver. I mean, if the child is on hospice, they do get hospice nurse and hospice social worker. Um, but in terms of a caregiver to be the, you know, the hospice nurse or social worker comes in 30 minutes to do a physical exam or 30 minutes to, to check how things are going emotionally. Um, but in terms of a caregiver for a four or six or eight or 12 hour shift, children aren't in a situation where they need, seem to need someone like myself. Mm -hmm. So that door, while I'd love for it to pop open for me, really hasn't uh, materialized. Interesting. And you know, that, that brings up reflections for me about, um, you know, sole purpose work uh, that we feel a calling towards. Like, it seems to me, and it seems like you recognize this, that that first near-death experience that you had, or I don't know if your injuries were actually fatal or if you were just having an out-of-body experience and 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 like that you could clarify that if you feel to but but that experience these are the types of experiences that we have that give us a sense of a sole purpose calling 
And yet when I say that, and when I reflect on that myself, what my sole purpose calling is and my experiences around that, there's a fantasy that I have that tends to go along with right alongside a sole purpose calling that says, oh, if this is my sole purpose calling, that means that I should be making a generous living, doing something that fulfills that sole purpose calling, right? And, and this is sort of the, the capitalist commodification idea, ideology that sort of inserts itself upon this, when the reality of, the, of it is, is that sometimes this, or probably maybe even most often, that sole purpose calling is just a, a thread a preparatory thread that 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 like you say the maypole that everything rotates around sometimes closer sometimes farther away sometimes nowhere near it for a period of time but that doesn't mean it's not going to be or hasn't been fulfilled so you know it, it could be the kind of thing where at one point there's one child maybe even you know, somebody that you know, or a stranger, or there's one child that you get to be there for at some point, or maybe you already were there for in some way, and and might not even remember or associate it with that calling. Um, maybe even something that you said to a child whose parents were passing or grandparents were passing that helped them to see death and dying in a different way, or perhaps something that, um, yeah, so yeah, something you've said to a parent whose parents died and that then helped them when their child passed away and they didn't have you as a caretaker, but for the child, but they related to you i don't know it, it just that there's some oftentimes a mysterious fulfillment of that sole purpose calling that that we don't even really get to to know to know about that, that's there's a mysterious quality for it and i'm saying this to myself because they're they're to because there can be such a strong longing for some kind of recognized fulfillment of that calling that we've carried with us all along. And there can be somewhat of a despair or if we have a fantasy about what that might need to look like in order to be fulfilled, you know? And I just, I wonder if, um, if you have any, if this brings up any reflections for you, if you've had ideas about what fulfilled would be like, what would it would look like to have fulfilled this calling for you and what ways have you felt fulfilled and maybe not so fulfilled? Um, I can see myself wanting to go off in about six different directions. So I'm pausing for a minute to see what surfaces most prominently. Um, I think what surfaces most prominently is just to remind us that, um, or do, maybe if it's not a reminder, share that as many people come towards the end of their life, there's almost a reversal back to being a child. 
And so I may have a 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 year old aged person according to their birth certificate in front of me. Um, however, their mental, emotional, certainly their physical needs, you know, they're incontinent and needing assistance with uh, changing of pants and eating, uh, oral care, bathing. Um, so um, even though these people have six or seven or eight or nine decades of life, um, they're oftentimes very much like a needy, and I don't mean needing because intentionally they want to be incapacitated, but because they're at that stage in their transition, they no longer have the capacity to care for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, I am dealing with little children. And I see this especially with people uh, with dementia, people on hospice with dementia who um, maybe a few years ago uh, regressed from the clear, competent, cognitively capable uh, 88-year-old to no longer being able to read, I mean, no longer being able to drive, no longer being able to cook their food, no longer be able to remember names, no longer be able to read two sentences and remember them, no longer be able to write, and, um, and then needing assistance dressing, even though they're not on hospice yet, they need assistance dressing, they need to be reminded to bathe, how to brush their, you know, because the dementia has, has caused this regression even before they go on to hospice. So um, I think it's just important that while I may not have worked with, you know, two-year-olds or three-year-olds or four-year-olds or eight or 10 or 12-year-olds, um, according to their birth years, um, I have worked with, I, you know, I won't say everybody that happens with, there are some people who pass who are still their birth age, but in mind, but everyone physically is needing their pants changed and, you know, water brought to them and a washcloth and some of those physical types of things. So I think there is an aspect of this and, and I'm happy to keep going, but I'll also stop and check in and see if there's anything. Yeah, well, because it, it, it brings up the original question too of, and I'm sure that, you know, with people of any age, that same kind of thing might come up. In fact, when I've reflected on the possibility of myself dying, it's not the dying that feels problematic. It's the grief of those left behind that feels problematic and feels difficult. Um, and so I can imagine that this is something that you help your clients, the patients that you work with who are preparing for transition to feel like they can let go and move on despite the grief of their loved ones that, that they're leaving behind. And I imagine that that's a, that's a fairly um, important part of your work. And I'd love to hear more about that, of how to, maybe we even work with the, with the loved ones who are staying behind to help them 
let go and release that person who's passing so that they can move into this next realm for them and and really um really be released like you weren't you didn't feel when you were seven and laying on the on the pool deck you weren't being released right and you were able to come back but these people that you work with are not going to be able to come back when it's their time to go and that could be a difficulty a, a catching point to to have their to not if they're if they're drawn back because of their of their loved one's grief right and can't and can't be released so i'm just curious about that how you work with that yeah, um, I'd like to kind of braid together two, two points here and, and maybe use an example um, to uh, personify the point. One of them is um, because of my childhood experience and just to tap back on a question you had earlier, uh, whether it, you know, whether the, in, I don't, whether the injuries were real enough for actually dying or whether it was an out-of-body experience, I, I can't say, um, I, you know, for me, and, and it might, at some moments I find myself tending to think it was an out-of-body experience when I hear people talking about out-of-body experience. And then when I hear people talking about near-death experiences, I think it's more that way. And, and I've had just come to peace with myself. It's not something I want to nitpick. I just come to peace with myself. This is the experience that I had. This is the truth of my experience. And whether, whether it's defined with this term or that term, this is the experience. And this is how it's impacted my life. And one way it's impacted my life by being on the other side, for whatever reason or however, however it's titled, the experience of the freedom and the joy and the bliss and uh, everything, I believe that that is the most significant gift that I bring into a home and to a bedside when I arrive, mm -hmm. is my absolute comfort with where this person is going. Mm. And I've walked in and relieved other professional caregivers who I can feel their anxiety about dying, the mm. caregiver's anxiety. <laughs> so you can imagine what the person in bed is feeling. And so this is what I feel like I bring. And I think I may have said this to you on the phone. Um, you know, I'm always just a little bit jealous that they get to go. <laughs> Um, you know, um, and I think that it's that, and I don't talk about this, you know, I seldom talk, um, I seldom focalize on this. I just bring that comfort mm. and the person in bed just, ah, you know, it's just so, so that's one thing I wanted to mention. And then in terms of the the family members and the grief and the fear and the worry about where am I going and what's going to happen and and all of that. Um, I often tell, I mean, the 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 clients that I work with, they can feel this about me and uh, settle into it themselves. And the family members, I often talk to in the other room about how difficult it's usually, you know, adult children whose parents, their mother or father is passing on. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's a husband and wife, the husband's passing on and the, and the wife, but 
So I'm usually talking to the loved ones in the other room and saying, you know, it's really hard. I know it's hard on all of you. What's going on, the unknownness of the process, the unknown duration of it, what's going to happen during that, during this period. And then what's happening, you know, where are they going and what's, what happens? And most people, much to my surprise, uh, haven't, or at least don't share with me, they're thinking about these things. Most of it, I think, is kind of stuck inside and nobody wants to think about it or deal with it until their loved one is in bed on hospice. Mm -hmm. And I've oftentimes told families, you know, it's, it's really difficult for them to know that their the client, the, the dying one, is causing their loved ones to grieve so much. It's not easy on them and their process to know the pain, to feel the pain, to see the distress. Parents want to, parents love their children and never have wanted to cause pain or distress of their children. And just because this event is happening to them, they're dying, that's causing their family members to grieve tremendously. And so, we have a conversation around that so that they can become more cognizant of what the person in bed may be going through and more cognizant of their own grieving process and talk about the unknowns, talk about their fears and worries so that some of that can settle down and settle out so that when they come back into the room, it's not quite as elevated an agitation level and they can be more with the person in bed and the person's process in bed rather than hypervigilant to tamping down everything that's going on. And um, so, so those are some of the things that happen with my walking into a room and happen with the loved ones. And just to give an example of a recent um, uh, family that I was working with, um, I had been called, uh, most of my work is word of mouth, and I was called um, and, and the referring person said, this woman had just come on hospice and it was, thought that she had a very short time left. And um, she and her adult son and daughter were living in the same home and the uh, daughter needed to go to work. Um, and so there, there was relief that was needed while the daughter was at work. So I contacted the daughter, the daughter and I spoke. We agreed uh, that I would come uh, at eight, eight o'clock and the daughter needed to leave by 8.30. And um, when I got there, I met with the daughter and I could, I mean, I knew over the phone, the daughter's level of anxiety or worry, of concern, of confusion, of bewilderment, uh, you know, everything. Um, her, it, her mother hadn't been on a long, slow illness. It, it was a sudden thing. And so we went into, she, we talked out in the living room and then we went into the mother's bedroom and the mother appeared to be asleep to me. The daughter had said her mother was still asleep. And when she went in, she said to her mom, she said in a, in a rather loud voice, not a whisper, mom, this is, this is Mary. And I said to the daughter, I said, oh, shh, shh, just, you know, it's fine. She can sleep. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't disturb. And um, so the daughter kind of quieted her voice 
and showed me around the bedroom where the medications were and where the supplies were. And we went into the bathroom and saw everything there, went back out. When I had said that, when the daughter told, went in the room to her mom, hey mom, Mary's here, this is Mary. I could see the mother being stirred from, I mean, I could see when I walked in the room just how deeply gone or, I don't even wanna say sleeping. I mean, on one hand, you might think she was sleeping, but energetically, she was not all present. You know, parting, partially parting to the transition part. And when the daughter said, Mary's here, you could see this pulling back, trying to pull the resources to pull back the energy to come back into body and to be, and then to be socially polite and correct and greet this new person. Oh, hello, you know. And the minute I said, oh, shh, shh, don't wake her, I could see her whole body just relax back into, oh, thank God, I don't have to put in a show. And she could sink back into her state, into her process, into whatever was going on um, for her. Okay, a few minutes later, when the daughter did need to leave, she went in her bedroom and said in a very loud voice, her mom was still deeply sleeping or quiet mm -hmm. in a deep state. And, and the mother pulled herself back up to say goodbye to her daughter in a mother-daughter kind of way. And you could see it was a very ritualized, traditional way of saying goodbye in the morning when you go to work. And you know what the two speakers say were has been well, well practiced and that and that was fine and so the daughter left and i said to the woman Anne, and um that's not her real name but we'll use it um she, i said oh Anne, um it's it's very nice to to see you and to meet you but please feel free to rest relax i'm just gonna sit here and if you need any and as I said these words, you could just see her relax to not have to put on a show, to not have to entertain me, to not have to engage the, the guest. She didn't have to be the host. She didn't have to get out of bed and make coffee or all those things. I said, I'll just be sitting over here in the chair. And if you need anything, let me know. And you could just see the relaxation that she could, she, she could be in. And... Um, she didn't stir for about an hour. And then her son came in at 9.30 and said, you know, we usually have mom up by 9.30. She has breakfast and is out in the living room sitting in the chair. And I said, well, you know, you know, Steve, she just, I checked with her if she wanted anything. She didn't want or need anything. She looks really peaceful and calm, comfortable warm and cozy right here in bed. If she wants to get up, I'll be happy to assist her up, but she doesn't seem to be. So these are things you just have to kind of teach the family to start looking out for. It's not the same routine anymore. So at 10 o'clock, he came back and he said, you know, it's really late for mom to be up. She's usually up and out in the living room watching TV. And I said, well, you know, you asked me to come here and to be here to help her with her journey. And it just seems to me that she's really comfortable right here. And if she wants to get up, I'll be more than happy to help her um, get up. 
So I went out of the room and then began talking with the son about the letting go process, the dying process, so that he could be brought up to date with, mom's not getting out of bed anymore. She was putting on a show. She was doing her best to be mom, to let you know everything was okay, to let you take care of her, to let you think she was on a schedule. But now she's got someone there, an ally, who can just let her be and do what she needs to be and do. And as I talked with him and kind of helped him understand what his mom's process was, he could begin to relax and be okay about her not getting up, that this is just what she needed to do. He didn't know any better. His sister didn't know any better. You know, they were doing what they'd always been doing and what had always worked. And nobody had said, hey, we've had a transition here. We've changed. I don't mean the death transition, but a significant change in mom's capacities. And then when the daughter came home, I also, she came in and she said, oh, hasn't mom been up yet? <laughs> he said, no. And so we, we went out in the other room and I shared with her this new phase that mom was in and that she was just fine in bed, she was comfortable and so forth. So those are some of the um, threads that kind of come to my attention um, in response to, to what you were bringing up. Mm. So beautiful. And, and this way that you're describing just in your tone of voice and in the, you know, the little details you're sharing about, you know, going and, you know, going in the other room, turning down the volume, you know, helping the, these family members to recognize what's going on. And, and being a guide because, you know, people don't talk about this at all. People don't talk about, you know, what to expect as a loved one is preparing to transition. Uh, it's the same with, um, you know, the other transitions in our womb life that I was talking about earlier in the conversation, these, these transitional phases, uh, are almost taboo. Like it's such a taboo to just stay in bed because you're getting ready to, how could that be a taboo? But it is, right? Because you're supposed to get up, you're supposed to perform, you're supposed to be on a schedule, all those things that that we've been taught and indoctrinated with and, and you know, have as structures un, unquestionable structures in our life there's no there's no room and so it's such a beautiful thing that you come and and provide a context and and speak to and and help educate people on these different structures of of life and transition and that's that's very similar to the work that I do with helping folks to understand what's going on for them and when the structures of their lives and their premenstrual phase, for example, don't seem to fit, you know, and their menstrual cycle in general doesn't seem to fit, you know, the, the structures of our lives where we're supposed to be performing, we're supposed to be uh, fulfilling various uh, externally defined roles on a constant, in a constant way that there's never, you know, we're supposed to be getting up and going to work and doing all these things that, that don't match with the, with the cyclical structure of our bodies. 
and of our lives that there's a that there's changes that go throughout that happen throughout our lifestyle that are fundamental changes in our structures and that this this linear lifestyle of performing the same rituals and every day and performing in the same way every day with the same amount of energy that's just not a realistic thing to have happen from the day we're born to the day we die and that so many of these um transitions even childbirth you know the the fact that you know the united states is only uh doesn't require uh paid paid leave for for pregnant women uh is ridiculous i'm not, it, it's so ridiculous it's so abusive that i'm almost speechless about it i can barely say the words uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whereas in other countries, uh, there's required, uh, legally required um, amounts of paid leave for um, birthing families uh, to be to be able to care for this huge transition of uh, moving into life. And then I'm imagining that there's a similar thing uh, with people whose loved ones have passed. There's no paid bereavement leave required by law. I mean, if you have a job that offers that, it's like uh, you're in huge amount of luck. Uh, whereas most most businesses where people work most, uh, most play, I don't know, have you encountered people who have paid bereavement leave hardly anyone. no i haven't i haven't and just to use this example when the woman passed four days later um that's how quickly once she was given permission and allowed to 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 transition um it was four days later and i i was there it happened at four in the morning and the daughter needed to go to work at 8.30. And um, I mean, and and that I mean, she had to be at work at 8.30. The her, her particular employers had cameras on her job and would know if she hadn't wasn't there at 8.30. So here her mother has just passed. And she didn't, and she had to be on the job four and a half hours later. And, and so we, well, I mean, and, and just to give a little insight into what that means is, so we needed to contact hospice so that the hospice nurse could come over and um, uh, be able to certify the death, you know, have, have, I mean, you know, make sure that the person was, had died for the death certificate and then contact the funeral home. Fortunately, arrangements had been made. I had checked on that when I first arrived because oftentimes that isn't done and then the end comes and nobody knows what's next. Not that there's anything wrong with that and that can be handled. And then the funeral home had to contact its folks that transport bodies. And all of this was starting, I mean, you know, actually the mother passed 4.44 in the morning uh, I got the daughter and it, you know, it was some time of sadness and grief and all that. And, and then contacting hospice, a hospice nurse at that hour has to come out and do what they have to do. And then they contact the funeral home and the funeral home has to arrange for its driver to come. And all of that was done before 8.30. Wow. 
because to accommodate her job job schedule yes exactly and yeah. I, imagine I mean in some places just to just to say i mean you were asking about jobs and so yeah. i just wanted to point out that example in other cases you know people do have the freedom of calling in and saying hey my mom just passed i can't come to work today you know there's not there's not a there they might not get paid that? they might not have paid leave for that day but they at least have the freedom of calling in without jeopardizing their employment status where it sounds like this gal that you were working with if she had tried to she she, she didn't even have the option of calling in and there are a lot of businesses and employees employers that that have that kind of approach that if somebody has any kind of life event that interferes with them showing up uh at the set upon time right that they that they are that they'll fire them and and unfortunately we do have people that have that that think that their profits and their business operation is more important and 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 primary should be primary in all of their employees lives and that nothing in their personal lives should ever interfere with their performance and and this this is actually quite common uh it seems like and 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 luckily you know there are people that still have an a sense of the importance of our human experience that that that's actually something of importance in our lives but unfortunately for some you know they are not thinking that way and so thank you for sharing the those these stories uh, and and for doing this work of reminding people and educating people and being um uh, an uh, a bringer of peace into the friction that can be caused by the societal structures that don't allow space for a time and space for these transitions, I imagine that that would that that those um, practitioners, the the funeral home drivers and the hospice nurse, they had to sort of hustle, and that they might be used to having to perform their work under pressure and in an expedient manner to accommodate the work schedule of the loved ones, and it's really unfortunate that that process is is uh, beholden to that schedule where it, it and that that could cause like and it brings me back to something you said earlier of, of um, refusing the call to go to San Francisco and work with the H patients making you sick right where we have this calling we have this inner rhythm we have this transition that might be calling to us that is needs to happen, but we have some other idea or structure that stops us from fully entering into that. And that makes us sick. And this is the same kind of thing. And I imagine it a source of much illness. And I know it is certainly for womb wellness when people are trying to force themselves to live in a structure 
in a way that's structured differently than their internal rhythm and their in their calling from within. And it's the same with perimenopause. Uh, perimenopause is a time of transition into really um, listening to that inner wisdom and following that soul calling. And if we are not able to see it or aren't willing to follow it or have structures in our lives that we're really attached to that we can't adjust or let go of in order to follow that inner rhythm then that creates friction and illness and i and i wouldn't be surprised if you I mean, maybe you do have stories of following up with the loved ones of people who passed and seeing that pattern of, or even perhaps even in the process of the longer term process of people passing of how the resistance or fighting, the loved ones fighting with the process, the dying process, or even the dying person fighting with the process, creating more friction and how, and the, and it's it sounds like you're just in there easing that for people and helping people to connect with the natural rhythm of the process again. Of course, you know, if it would have been me, I'd have been like, can't you call in and not go to work this morning? Hello? Did you even mention that? No, I, I, you, oh, you, you did, I did. You did? Oh, yeah. How did oh, you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you say it? I, no, she, but she said she couldn't because they had cameras on. I mean, her supervisors weren't on site of where she needed to go, but they had cameras on and they would, and they would be checking to see if she was there and there, and she just, she couldn't not go. Well, there wasn't somebody. Um, and, and I, I, I've been like, couldn't you call them and tell them why you're not going? And isn't there an, ex, you know, an, ex, an acceptable list of reasons why people might not show up? You know, I would have just been like. <laughs> um, that wasn't, you know, I offered and suggested and she decided what she needed to decide. But one thing I wanted to touch on that you uh, just mentioned about I mean, this was really very quick in four days from her going from having the day before gotten out of bed at 8.30 and presented herself in the kitchen for breakfast in the living room chair to, to passing. Um, but on the other extreme is uh, when they're doing that, the, the resisting what's going on, both the, the person on hospice and the family members, and then it drags on and drags on and drags on to a point where people are finally just saying, oh, I just wish he'd go. Mm. Uh, you know, the family has become exhausted. The person in bed has become exhausted by putting on a show and the family putting on a show and dragging this out. And then once everybody finally gets to a place of we've done all we can, we've struggled and resisted and tried to stay around as long as we can. We have no more energy to prevent our loved ones from being sad about what's gonna happen because it's gonna happen whether it happens today or in a month. Finally, there's kind of this internal reconciliation of it really would be better to pass mm. than all this struggle and strain that everybody's acting on mm. 
Wow, such such a powerful wisdom there too for these other transitions we've been talking about too of like okay that and and then an, an acceptance that I hear in you of being with these people that have whatever parts of them not ready yet or ready quickly and other people other loved ones not ready as quickly or ready sooner than they are ready and and just the 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 natural expected friction of all these people that we know happens when we're all in our lives together and and whatever is happening some people are ready for sooner and others are ready for not so soon and that that's just a natural part of the process as well is that there's going to be a variety of different ways that people deal with this given everything wow it's just I'm so um, grateful that you uh, are willing to come on the show and share with us the wisdom of your work. And it just is very impactful for me. And I feel we can apply this wisdom, uh, receive this wisdom, absorb it, and apply it in any aspect of our lives that especially these you know enchantress phases of our lives that have so much taboo that we might not feel prepared for that we haven't had support with that we might not um, have people to talk about with or we might not recognize the need to talk about and and just as you share about this with the dying process that we can see a mirror for any other difficult transition that we might be working with in our lives and receive support like the support you offer. You know, this is the kind of similar support that I offer people who are going through these other womb life transitions that we talk about and, and feel the, the impact that having somebody to help us normalize these transitions and empower us through these transitions to make healthy choices in these transitions that that give ourselves permission to have these powerful parts of life be something that that we can be present for, right? That we don't have to necessarily rush off to work, that we can take some time to be with these transitions and these processes that are an important part of life. And um, so thank you so much for this, for your calling, for answering your calling and letting it speak to uh, our calling, anybody's calling who's listening to this, myself included, to be present for all aspects of life, especially the ones that um, we're taught to ignore or fear or shy away from or, um, you know, avoid in, at all costs, right? <laughs> so many people, so many, um, so much that, that makes us want to shy away from, from death, particularly, as well as these other transitions I'm talking about. So, uh, I could sit here and talk with you for all afternoon, but we might save more conversation about this for a part two, perhaps part three, part four. I could go on and on with you about this if you're willing to come back for another time. Yeah. But for now, yeah. I'd love to invite you to share with folks if anyone wanted to 
uh, contact you, reach out to you, talk to you more about your work, have, has any questions about what we talked about, how can they, uh, they reach you? Thank you, Soma. Um, I'd love to join you again um, anytime. Uh, and in terms of contacting me, uh, my choice right now, instead of being on social media with this particular topic, um, for, for me personally, it just doesn't lend itself that way or, or trying to create a model and put it into a website just hasn't, because it's so unique and each person and personality and family and illness and so many other things are so unique. It's hard to codify um, what, what the journey is gonna be and, and put out a presentation that this is, is it. And I mean, the joy for me in not getting tired of, with this work is to go in fresh with each new situation and not have a format as to how it has to go or what's, what's gonna happen. So for that reason, I really prefer that people just contact me via my email. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm happy to share that and then a phone call and have conversations so that I can specifically address you know, if it's a child and their aging parent, if it's a wife and her dying husband, everything is, is, is very special. And my email address is my name, Mary, M-A-R-Y. Uh, my middle name is Val, V for Valentine, A-L. And then McCoy, M-C-C-O-Y, Mary Val McCoy at msn.com. Beautiful. Very well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mary. And listeners also know that if you want to learn more about my work in the womb-centered healing temple, you can go to wombcenteredhealing.com. And I will echo what Mary said. It is very challenging to codify and put into, you know, put on a website. I've done my best, but it's not always 100% up to date with whatever's happening most recently, but most everything is. But if you can contact me through that website and various, on various channels, um, if you have any further questions uh, that needs more, more detailed, personalized attention. So um, thank you again, Mary, for joining me and uh, listeners can look forward to perhaps part two with Mary McCoy. All right, Great. that's all for now. Thanks so much until next time.